Go ahead and turn your Bibles to the book of Mark, please. If you're using the Pew Bibles in front of you, it's page 673. We've, uh, we've started working our way through the Gospel according to Mark. Uh, and last week, if you're here with us, we tackled a big heart issue. Uh, we tried to deal with the heart issue of cynicism. Um, we looked at uh, the, the, the verses in chapter 1 from verse 14 through 45 where Jesus uh, goes throughout the world and begins to initiate his kingdom, his beautiful kingdom, and inviting people to follow him. And we saw that as we look at the sort of kingdom Jesus establishes, that it's a really beautiful kingdom. Uh, it's not like those false kingdoms in this world that have caused us to become cynical where they promise so much but don't deliver. Um, or they use their power for evil instead of good, but Jesus offers a beautiful kingdom that we're freely invited to join by following him, and we see that he brings restoration and forgiveness of sins and life. And, and I hope that last week, as we, um, as we looked at that, that your heart was, um, was quickened, like mine was, to, to love Jesus afresh and to really want to follow him with all our hearts. Um, today, as we get into chapter 2, we're going to tackle another big heart issue, uh, and it's the issue of pride, specifically religious pride. That is pride in our ability to keep the rules, pride in our religious and moral performance. Um, now, how do you know if this is if this is relevant for you? Um, well, there's a couple questions. H have you ever felt better than someone else uh, because you've done something good that they haven't done. You ever felt that? Not, you don't have to raise your hands. It's all right. Uh, or even the flip side of that, have you ever felt worse than someone else because they've done some good uh, that you haven't done? Or have you ever felt like you need to put on a mask uh, or you know, put on a, a face, a, a, an outward front to hide something that you've done that you're ashamed of, that you need to present a face to someone else that you appear better than you actually are. You ever felt that temptation? Yeah, I, I think that we're hitting everybody now um, because we all struggle with this issue of pride. And, and, and really, this comes to a head in church. Uh, for a lot of people, this is what church is all about. Okay? For, for some folks, church is the way that you feel better than other people. You know, I go to church on Sunday. This other person doesn't go, therefore I feel better about myself. Okay, we use church to feed that tendency towards pride. Or some people hate church because they think church is, by definition, the place where I go and I have to pretend that I'm better than I am. If I'm going to go and be with those people, then I need to put on a mask and pretend like I'm not really this broken, messed up person that I really am, but I need to show them this, this other face. And people don't like to make that performance, they don't like to do that, and so church becomes a place that you hate. Now, if you can, if you can relate to that, um, Jesus has some really good news for you today. You know, living to feed your pride and to protect yourself and your, by performing, that's a horrible way to live. And Jesus doesn't want us to live that way. So we're going to see here in this first uh, part of chapter 2 in Mark 
is that Jesus has really good news that kills our pride and frees us from the slavery to pride. So what we're going to do today is just look at two stories, the first two stories in Mark 2. And we're going to see some good news. And I'm going to give some two important clarifications to that good news. And I'm going to give you some homework. So brace yourself. But first let's start with the good news. And this is point number one on your outline. The good news is that Jesus forgives sinners. Jesus forgives sinners. In chapter 2, verse 1, we pick up the story again. So Jesus has been ministering. He started his ministry in Galilee. It's in northern Israel. And he's been uh, going around and healing people and doing miracles. And he's, he's left Capernaum, which is kind of his home base. And he did some ministry. Now he's come back. And so he showed up back in Capernaum. Everybody knows that he heals, that he's this wonderful teacher, and so the people are flocking to him. Let's read the first five verses of chapter 2. And then when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And, And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, And when they made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. All right, we'll get to the rest of the story, but I just want to stop there for a minute and make a couple observations. Um, so, So Jesus gets back to Capernaum. He's been there before, and he's healed a lot of people, and the crowds have flocked to him before. So he shows up, and everybody comes to see him, and he's teaching in a house. And the house is jam packed. You can't fit anybody else in this house. It's completely full. Uh, So these guys come, these four friends carrying a paralytic, and they obviously want to bring him to Jesus because they know that Jesus can heal this man. He's got a problem, he's paralyzed, and they know Jesus can solve the problem. So they come to the house, but the house is completely full. They can't get in. That doesn't stop them because they know, like like a lot of houses uh, built in that period, in that area, there was like a stairway or a ladder going up to the roof, and so they carry this man up to the roof. And the roof is just a uh, kind of a mud-thatched roof, so they could start to dig through the roof. And they dig a hole above where Jesus is, and they lower the man down. Now, of course, um, if that were to happen right now, um, I would probably stop talking, and everybody would look at the roof. And, and so these guys are digging in the roof. Everybody in the room is paying attention to what's going on above them. All eyes are on this man. He's lowered down in front of Jesus, and, and he's sitting there. And everyone in the room surely is expecting that Jesus now, as the paralyzed man is sitting in front of him, Jesus will say to the man, Son, you're healed. Get up and walk. Because that's why these guys brought Jesus. That's why uh, people who were sick and demon-possessed and paralyzed came to Jesus because they wanted to be healed of their sickness and their infirmities. And so the expectation of the crowd, having seen Jesus heal many people before, is that, well, they finally got this sick man to Jesus, so Jesus is going to say, Son, you are healed. Get up and walk. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven. So these friends have brought the paralyzed man, and certainly the paralyzed man has been looking forward to Jesus meeting this need. And these friends have gone to great length to get this man to Jesus, to have the need met, and Jesus doesn't give them what they want. 
I wonder if any of you can relate to that. Um, you know, he had a need. He was paralyzed, had a health problem. They brought that health problem to Jesus, and Jesus didn't immediately heal him. He didn't. Um, we've got needs like that. I mean, I know that we have health needs. I know that we have other things that we are bringing to Jesus, that we are saying, you know, Lord, we have this problem. We've got some financial difficulties, or, or Lord, there's this relationship that's really I've got some trouble with. Or, you know, there's, there's all these other, the spectrum of needs that we have that we bring to Jesus, and we expect him to, uh, to, to meet those needs. And there's nothing wrong with asking Jesus to meet those sorts of needs. But, but the point of this story is that if all we're doing is bringing those sorts of needs to Jesus, but we're ignoring our sin, then we're completely missing the real problem. See, if we're just coming to Jesus with, with little needs, even, even needs that seem big, like being paralyzed, right, seems like a big need, if all we're bringing to Jesus are needs like that, but we're ignoring sin, we're like someone who's going to the doctor, and we're saying, hey, doctor, I've got this really bad hangnail. Can you, can you fix this hangnail? All the while, we've been cut in our femoral artery, and we're bleeding out, and we'll be dead in three minutes. Okay, that's how long it takes. I looked it up. Okay. Now, now, it might be a bad hangnail. It might be a really, really bad hangnail. It might even be infected, in which case you really do need to take care of it. Or it's going to cause bigger problems. But it doesn't matter if you're bleeding from your femoral artery. The, the doctor who says, oh, yeah, let me take a look at that hangnail, and ignores the fact that you're bleeding... That's malpractice, right? He's going to say, I, I understand that that's a bad hangnail. Let me get a tourniquet on that leg, and then we'll take a look at it. Okay. And that's what Jesus is doing here. The paralyzed man, yeah, it's a big problem, right? He's paralyzed. He can't walk. Big problem. But Jesus says, hey, there's a bigger problem. And I'm going to deal with that first. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, when Jesus says that, it's a very bold statement. To pronounce forgiveness of sins is a bold thing to say. And the scribes who are sitting around, sort of watching Jesus, seeing, waiting for him to mess up, they start to question that. In verses 6 and 7, it says, Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So this is their question. Who, who can forgive sins but God alone? And that's a good question. It's a right assumption that they have. Uh, it, it's not like this, this uh, Jesus and this paralyzed man have some history together where the paralyzed guy is, has um, you know, offended Jesus and now he's come to Jesus and Jesus says, oh, you know, I forgive you for that fight that we had last week. Uh, no, he's, he's giving ultimate forgiveness. This is not like just a personal, personal like, just Jesus and this guy had a problem. This is an ultimate statement of forgiveness. He's saying, I forgive your sins all your sins, every sin you've ever committed, I forgive it. And the scribes are rightly sitting there saying, who can do this except God alone? Now they're wrong in calling it blasphemy because Jesus is God. And that's the claim that he's making here. So Jesus responds to their question, verses 8 through 12. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? 
But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. So, notice, Jesus, these the, the scribes, they weren't saying anything out loud, but Jesus knew what they were thinking, and he calls them out on it, and he says uh, th- this very hard question. He says, which is easier? Which is easier? To say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, pick up your bed and go home. Now, if Jesus were just a con man, it would be easier to just say, your sins are forgiven. Right? Because that's not verifiable. Anybody could just go up to someone and say, your sins are forgiven, and there's no way of knowing if it's really happened or not. So in that sense, the harder thing to do is to put yourself to the test and say, all right, I'll do something that's verifiable. I'll say to this man, take up your mat and go home and walk. And he does say that. He takes that test. The man goes home. And so the idea is, since he's proven in something that you can verify that he can do this, the statement that he's made, your sins are forgiven, is also true. He also has the authority to do that. But that doesn't mean that saying your sins are forgiven is an easy thing to say. Sometimes we think that. Um, some people just think about God, uh, well, why, doesn't, why, why does it have to be a cross at all? Why doesn't God just say, hey, you're forgiven? You know, why, why can't God just forgive everybody? I mean, that should be the easiest thing in the world. Everybody's forgiven. Everybody goes to heaven. It'll be fine. Why can't God just do that? Sounds really easy. But that's a misunderstanding of the character of God. You know, God, uh, like, a good, um, like a good cop, or a good judge always makes sure that people get what they deserve. Right? We celebrate that in a judge. We celebrate that in a police officer. That they execute justice. That those who do wrong uh, get the right consequences for what they've done. And God is that. He is just. But also, like a good father, he loves to forgive people who have made mistakes. He loves to forgive his children and to not give them what they deserve. And when you understand those two sides of God's character, you realize that forgiveness doesn't just seem hard, it seems impossible. How can you do both those things? How can you give everyone what they deserve and not give people what they deserve at the same time? See, that's how hard forgiveness is. That's harder than making a paralyzed man get up. Any old miracle worker or a really good doctor could help a paralyzed man walk again. But only God can come up with a way to both give everyone what they deserve in justice and forgive people that they don't get what they deserve. And how did he do that? He did that in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. We come back again to the theme verse of this whole book, Mark 10, 45. Did you memorize it yet? No? Okay, work on that. Mark 10.45. Jesus said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is how God forgives. Jesus Christ gives his life as a ransom for many, so that justice is satisfied. All our sins get transferred to Jesus, and he really dies. He really pays the penalty for that sin. He gets what he deserves, because he took our sin. And God gets to be merciful and forgive us so that those who put their faith in Jesus have their sins forgiven and are washed clean. 
But that's how hard it is to forgive sins that took the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. See, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus forgives sins, that he forgives sinners. No matter what you think your deepest need is, he meets the deepest need of your heart, the need to be forgiven by God, have Jesus take your punishment, and receive eternal life. All right, so that's the good news. There's two important clarifications that come in the second story. I'm going to move on to those now. The first clarification, this is point number two on your outline, is that Jesus forgives only sinners. Jesus forgives sinners, but he forgives only sinners. This is where we're really going to start to work on our pride. Because the only kind of people that Jesus forgives are sinners. Verses 13 through 19 is the second story. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table at his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. It's very common to divide the world into two groups of people, the rule keepers and the rule breakers, the good people and the bad people. Uh, it's, it's common in our day. It's been common from, uh, from since the world began. And, and here in Jesus' time, uh, these two groups are clearly shown in this story. Uh, one of the groups was the scribes and the Pharisees. They would be the rule keepers. Another group were the folks called tax collectors and sinners. They'd be the rule breakers. So these, the scribes and the Pharisees, these were groups of people, a group of people who were very, very serious about God's law. Uh, they were sticklers for the letter of the law. They would follow it exactly. They cared so much about the law that they would make additional rules that weren't in the law as kind of a fence around the law so that they would never even come close to breaking the actual rules. Okay, they, they were obsessive about following the rules. Now this other group, the tax collectors and sinners, this is essentially everybody else. They weren't as obsessed as the, as the Pharisees at, in keeping the rules. Um, they, you know, it could, could include anybody from someone who grossly violates the Ten Commandments uh, to somebody who's just not as, as much of a stickler on tithing their spices as the Pharisees. Um, but, but people who break the rules. And a specific subset of that is the tax collectors. These are the folks who, um, it's not quite like IRS agents, um, but tax collectors are hated in every culture, and in this culture especially because they would, um, they would buy the right to collect taxes for a fixed rate, and then they had the freedom to charge whatever tax rate they wanted, and they could keep the difference. And so these folks were really hating their culture. In the Jewish culture, they were considered unclean. They were social outcasts, just like the leper that we looked at last week. And so these tax collectors and sinners, they're in the group of rule breakers. Now when Jesus comes, he hangs out with one of these groups. And it's not the group you'd expect. 
you pretend, pretend if you can that you haven't heard the story before. Uh, maybe this was just the first time you've heard it. But, but just imagine, you've got these two groups. You've got one group that's obsessively concerned about obeying God's law. Another group, not so much. Jesus comes. God comes in human form. Who do you expect him to hang out with? I think most of us, if we can distance ourselves from the story a little bit, our natural reaction would be to say, he's going to hang out with the people who care about his law. I mean, sure, they go a little bit overboard, but they're basically doing okay. I mean, they're trying. So the group's not even trying. We'd expect Jesus to be with the people who are trying. And we're surprised when we find out that he's eating with the tax collectors and sinners. And so are the Pharisees. They're surprised. We're surprised because we, again, have a wrong understanding of the kind of God that God is. Like the scribes and the Pharisees, we fundamentally think of God as someone who rewards good people. And we think of ourselves as good people. And so we expect that if we do X for God, that he will then deliver Y for us. If I stop swearing, then God will help me get a job. If I go to church, then God will help me get better over the sickness that I've got. You know, this quid pro quo, tit for tat, if I do something for God, if I follow his rules, then he is obligated to respond to that and bless me with what I want. That's how we think of God, that it's, he's some sort of system to be figured out, like a game to be mastered. If I get the rules and I follow the rules, then the outcome that I expect is the outcome I'm going to get. That's what the Pharisees and scribes functioned under, and so they were flabbergasted to see Jesus eating with the tax collectors and sinners. They can't even ask him. They ask the disciples, what is going on here? How could he eat with them? Because these people haven't done anything to deserve his attention. They haven't done anything to merit his favor. And that's exactly the point. Because that's what grace is. See, Jesus forgives sinners, and he only forgives sinners. Jesus goes to be with the people who need him. See, verse 17 tells us the truth about God. Jesus says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Um, we can misunderstand this, so I want to clarify. Jesus is not letting the scribes off the hook here. He's not saying, oh, you guys are righteous. You don't really need me. You guys are fine on your own with your rule keeping, so I'm going to go to the people who need me. If you read uh, the New Testament at all, you know that Jesus doesn't think very highly about the scribes and the Pharisees and their so-called righteousness. He's really talking about their self-righteousness, saying those who, are, uh, who think they're righteous don't need a doctor but the sick. So these self-righteous people, they're like a person who's got, um, who's got serious and yet very treatable cancer, but who will not go to the oncologist to get a treatment because they don't want to admit that they're sick. They think they're okay. They're self-righteous. They think, I'm, I'm all right. I don't need a doctor. They really do. The tragedy is that they won't admit it. See, Jesus comes to help sinners. Just like a doctor only treats people who admit that they're sick, Jesus only forgives people who admit that they're sinners. Uh, I told you we're going to work on our pride today, right? So th th this is where it starts to get kind of hard for us to hear. 
Uh, it's easier when we keep it in the general sense. I don't know how you felt when you saw the title today, Sinners Are Welcome Here. Um, you know, if you've been around church for a while, you can kind of say, yeah, yeah, that's right. Sinners are welcome here. That's good. I'm a sinner. Uh, it gets a little harder when we get more specific, though. Uh, I wonder what your reaction would have been if the title on the board today was Liars Are Welcome Here. Like, really? Liars? We want a, lot, a bunch of liars at church? Um, what if we said prostitutes are welcome here? Jesus ate with prostitutes a lot. Do we, do we, want, do we really want prostitutes here? Uh, what about gossips? Gossips are welcome here. Alcoholics are welcome here. Homosexuals are welcome here. We could go on and on. But I wonder, when I said any of those things, did you think, do we really want that kind of people here? Well, here's, here's the news. That's the only kind of people there is. And that's the only kind of people that Jesus saves. Jesus never saved a righteous person. If you are sitting here today and you are claiming to be a Christian, when you say, I'm a Christian, at the same time you're saying, I am a sinner. You know, it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, if you're saying, I'm a Christian, you're saying, I was so bad that it took the death of Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for my sin. That, that, gets, that gets at our pride. You know, that, that's how bad we are. It doesn't matter what good things that I've done, I can always look back at the cross and see that Jesus' death on the cross was because of my sin. So let's revisit those pride issues from the beginning. You know, some people go to church and they say, well, I'm going to church to feel better about myself. Is that, is that right? Is that, is that why we come here? No, uh, keeping the rules does not make us better in God's sight. The, foot, uh, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Rule-keeping doesn't make us better. Rule-keeping doesn't manipulate God into giving us what we want. It's not why we come to church. We come to church uh, to submit ourselves to God's authority, to become aware of our sin, even to repent of that and to follow him. Uh, and what about that, that tendency people have, well, I don't want to go to church because I have to put on a mask. You know, I hate Sunday mornings because, uh, because when, I, when I wake up in the morning, everything is, you know, my life's a mess, my family's a mess, and I have to come to church, and I have to pretend like everything's together because I don't want people judging me. Well, what's this have to say about that? Well, we don't have to hide our sin. We shouldn't be surprised when, eat, when, eat, when we sin against each other. We shouldn't be surprised that this place looks like an ER, where some people have broken bones, and some people have tourniquets, and some people have got, you know, um, I don't even know, uh, they're just, you know, disgusting and, and sick and coughing. And get, I mean, that's what an ER is supposed to look like. You know, it's a place where people who are hurting and broken go to get fixed and to get helped. That's what we are. You know, it's, it's kind of a cliche, but the church is a hospital for sinners. Clichés are clichés because they're true. Uh, the church is a hospital for sinners. So when we're here and we're interacting with each other and we, we, uh, we see sin, like, or we get sinned against by one another, don't be surprised and be like, oh, I thought you were a Christian. Well, yeah, I'm a Christian. That means I'm a sinner. It means I'm going to sin against you. So you don't have to pretend that you're not a sinner. You don't have to condemn one another when you do sin. But we need to talk about the second clarification, too. So I don't want to just leave that hanging there. 
Um, point number three on your outline. Uh, Jesus forgives only repentant sinners. Uh, so this is really important. Uh, nothing that I've said so far should be interpreted uh, as me saying uh, it's okay to just sin. Okay? Well, pastor said I'm a sinner, so I'm just, I'm just going to sin, right? I, I, I hate that. I hate it when people use that phrase, like, well, I'm a sinner, or I'm only human, as some sort of excuse to just to, to not care about the sin in their lives. Um, it, it's not enough just to say, well, you know, I'm just a man, you know, pornography, it's really attractive. You know, I mean, I'm just, I'm just human. What am I supposed to do? Of course I'm going to look at pornography, right? And Jesus forgives, so it'll be all right. You know, I, I won't hurt anybody. I'll just keep this in my own little compartmentalized world, and I'll just do that, and, and, and I'll be fine. Uh, and Jesus forgives me, and it's okay. And, and insert sin here. I mean, pornography or gossip or uh, holding on to grudges or theft or greed or, you know, whatever it is, we, we can justify to ourselves, well, Jesus forgives me, so I'm just going to hold on to my sin. It's fine. I'll be all right. But when Jesus calls sinners, he calls sinners to repentance. Admitting sin isn't enough. It's not just to say, well, I am a sinner. You say, well, I'm a sinner, and I repent of that sin. See, from the very beginning of his ministry in, in Mark 1.15, Jesus calls people to repentance. He says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. So the gospel, the good news is that Jesus forgives sinners, but that call to repentance is him saying, accept it, right? Repentance is like a U-turn. You recognize I'm going in one direction, it's the wrong direction, I need to turn around and go the other way. And Jesus calls us to do that. He calls us to repent. Now, I want to be clear here, because again, this is a place where we can misunderstand. There's two aspects to repentance. There's a once-for-all repentance, and there's a moment-by-moment repentance. Okay. So the once-for-all repentance, this is what happens at times like when we call uh, conversion or getting saved or believing in Jesus. You know, That moment when you first uh, acknowledge the truth of the gospel and you say, yes, I want to follow Jesus. It's a once-for-all repentance. You, you, just, you say to Jesus, I, I admit my sin. I admit that I'm a sinner. Please forgive my sins. I want to follow after you. You're changing your allegiance from yourself being in control to Jesus being in control. And it's a once-for-all repentance. And when that happens, when you do that, all your sins are forgiven at that moment. Okay? All of them, past, present, future. All forgiven, all paid for by Jesus. Jesus paid it all. But, in addition to that, then as you begin to live the Christian life, the expectation is that you continue to live as a repentant sinner. Right? So you don't stop being a sinner the moment you get saved. Was that anybody's experience? Sorry, it wasn't mine. Uh, you, you know, got saved, and it's like, oh, I don't sin anymore, this is awesome. No, no, you, you get saved, and then you still, day by day, you sin. Now, that doesn't, you don't say, well, I'm a sinner, I'm just going to keep sinning. No, now you're a repentant sinner. So when you see your sin, you acknowledge it and you repent of it, day by day, moment by moment. But it's just not an option. It's, it's utter foolishness to say, well, because Jesus has paid it all, I'm just going to keep on sinning. I was reading a story in Sports Illustrated this week, a great theological magazine, and uh, 
It's, uh, it was a story about a bullfighter, a matador in Spain, who's a, a, pretty, ba a pretty average bullfighter, uh, or maybe even below average, uh, because the only thing he's really known for is how many times he's been gored. Uh, he, so he's been gored by bulls 23 times. Uh, and, you know, that's, I mean, that's like the horns of the bull going inside of you. This is, I mean, really, if you want more disgusting details, you can read the article. It's really gross. Um, so this guy, he's not a very good matador, but the point of the article was that medical care for matadors has gotten a lot better in recent years, so much so that now injuries that would have killed people earlier or kept them from bullfighting again, they can now get healed uh, faster and get back in the ring, uh, and for this guy's case, to get gored again. Now, I'm reading this article, I'm thinking, this guy is an idiot. He's, he's an idiot because he's drawing the completely wrong application from the advanced medical care he's receiving. You know, he's, he's taking advantage of this physician who's there. To, he gets gored by a bull, he gets healed up, and then he goes right back into the ring to get gored again. And it's not like he's, gotten a, he's not a better bullfighter. I mean, he's gonna, it's going to keep happening, keep happening. You know, the application, that was obvious to me and I think to you as well, is, you know, when you get healed from getting gored by the bull, don't go back in the ring. They have sharp horns. They're going to get you. Again, they're bigger than you. You're not that good at bullfighting, right? Don't go back in the ring. When you get healed, experience healing, receive that healing, and go live the life that you were meant to live, right? right? And I, I think we, we do that with sin. We, we don't see sin for what it is. Sin is like those big bulls with the pointy tusks, or whatever they're called, horns, pointy horns, and it's gonna, it just keeps goring you, and it keeps goring you, and it hurts you, and it's destructive, that's, that's Satan's lie. He tells us sin is beautiful and it's, ex, you know, it's, it's delightful, but it's really destructive. And so when you, when you keep going back to pornography and you keep going back to that and you say, well, this, is gonna, you know, this brings me life, this is satisfying, you don't realize that each time you're going back, you're destroying yourself. You're destroying your marriage. You're destroying your family. You're destroying yourself. You're destroying the people who are in those images. You know, your sin is destructive. That's the point. You know, every time you share a little morsel of gossip, uh, you're not... Uh, bringing life and joy, you're bringing destruction to those that you're talking about, to your own soul as you're sharing that on. You know, every sin is destructive. And Jesus is saying, I've healed you. You know, I've offered you forgiveness, complete forgiveness. Stop taking advantage of my forgiveness to destroy yourself and others. Repent of your bullfighting. Repent of your sin and experience life. See, the good news that God offers us is that Jesus forgives sinners. So what we have to do is we have to admit that we're sinners, that we need help, and then go to him for help. We repent of our sin once for all and then begin a lifestyle of continual repentance. I'm going to close with a story of a, just an illustration of what that looks like in our daily lives and then your homework. Um, the story's about my dad. Many of you know him, um, but um, one of the best things that my dad ever did for me, besides loving my mom, was model humility and repentance. So uh, when I was a kid, you know, time, time we'd, you know, we'd work together or something, I'd screw something up, and he'd yell at me, hurt my feelings. Sorry if that bursts anybody's bubbles. My dad's a sinner, too. Um, and I would run off, usually, to my room and, and sit there for a while. And here's, here's the great thing, though. My dad would come and seek me out. And this would happen. He'd come and seek me out, and he'd, he'd say, Dan, I'm sorry uh, for yelling at you. That was wrong. Will you please forgive me? And I would, I would forgive him, of course, right? You know, and this is, this is when I'm, you know, I'm a little kid. 
What dad's coming up to me, and he's asking forgiveness, admitting his sin to his child, um, and, and I would forgive him. Right? Uh, and, and that really didn't, um, didn't seem like that odd of a thing. I wouldn't even think it worth sharing, except that I've realized over the years that it is kind of unusual, that that's not a lot of people's experience growing up. And I'm sad for that, because that shaped me. That, that taught me these lessons of humility and repentance and forgiveness. You know, that, that my dad could come up to me and he could say, you know, I mean, I knew he did wrong, right? That, that wasn't a revelation to me. I was sitting there hurt because he'd done wrong. But that he would come and he would admit that to me. You know, it tells me that, that we're all sinners and that we can admit our sin. We don't have to pretend like it didn't happen. Right? And he taught me the importance of forgiveness and reconciliation. That, you know, that you can, you can admit your sin. When you do that, when you repent, there's healing and, and restoration. Now that shaped me, not just uh, in understanding humility and repentance, but now it shaped me in the way that I interact with my own children. Um, so you can ask them if dads ever had to repent, and they, if they remember, they would tell you, because it happens a lot. Um, and so I, I'll go up to my kids, I'll go up to my two-year-old, and I'll say, Angie, I'm sorry for yelling at you. I'm sorry for spanking you in anger. Will you forgive me? And of course she says yes. Right? That's the great thing. It takes them a while to learn how to hold a grudge. Um, and this is a great way to teach them not to. And not just with my kids, but to shape the way I interact with other people. So now I, I feel more comfortable um, renouncing my pride and telling people, um, hey, I, I sinned against you. You know, I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry for doing that. Will you forgive me? Okay. That's the sort of lifestyle that Jesus is commending to us here. He's saying, you know, you're all sinners. Stop pretending you're not. The way of life is to admit your sin and to repent of it and get forgiveness. And so the homework that I've got for us this week is just to say, when you sin this week, okay, no, it's not if, when you sin this week, be a repenting sinner. When you sin this week, be a repenting sinner. So when you sin against someone and you recognize it, oh, I shouldn't have done that, that was wrong, I want you and, I mean, this is not just me. I mean, this is a biblical application. I want you to go up to that person and to admit to them, I'm sorry for doing X. I'm sorry for yelling at you. Will you please forgive me? Okay. Um, if that seems really easy for you, great. I'm happy that you can do that and it's wonderful. It seems hard for you. Okay, this is a good first step. This is how we model, how we live uh, a lifestyle of repentance. And chances are that the person who sins against you and, does, and is going to ask for forgiveness um, is going to be someone in, in your family, in your room. So when someone comes up to you this week after sinning against you and they say, I'm sorry for doing this, will you forgive me? The other part of your homework is to forgive them. Okay? So be a repenting sinner this week. Let's put into practice what Jesus taught us, admitting that we're sinners, seeking forgiveness from him and from others by repenting of our sin. Let's pray and then move to our time of communion. Father, this is, uh, this is wonderful stuff. This is basic stuff. This is life-giving, gospel-saturated stuff that we've talked about today. I pray that you would uh, give us the humility and the faith this week to put it into practice in very simple ways by just admitting to another person that we have sinned 
and asking for forgiveness. And I pray that from that little seed of humility and faith, you would grow and, and bear great fruit uh, in our lives, that you would bring healing and restoration into relationships that may otherwise be broken. Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.